Father, we come before you and we wish to honor you for who you are, that you are the one who extends to us this mercy, that you don't judge us according to our sins. You tell us that if we judge ourselves, we will not fall under judgment. And we humbly submit to that, Lord. We declare to you that we are all sinners and you have extended to us not only your mercy but your grace, your unmerited favor. And as I said earlier, Lord, we long for the day where we will see you face to face. And until then, make us into disciples. We ask that your spirit would prompt us to turn to the right or to the left or go straight forward. Whatever you desire for us, Lord, we pray that we can die to our flesh and live for you. And as we are in the book of Exodus, teach us the lessons that the Israelites either learned or should have learned. And help us to walk away with some nuggets today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I left off with the Amalekites, how they came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. And they came up on the back of the Israelites and they would pick off the ones who were weak, the ones who were trailing in the back. And we know that Moses was commanding the forces that Joshua was over to go and attack the Amalekites. And as they did so, Moses said he would hold up his arms, the staff of God, and they would look upon it and they would have the victory. But when Moses' arms started to drop, Joshua and all the forces started to lose the battle. And therefore, Aaron and Hur, Hur, again, was probably the husband of Moses' sister, and they held up Moses' arms the whole time during the day, and they put a rock under Moses, and because of this, they overcame. Because the staff was held up, Moses' arms were up, they were encouraged in the battle and able to overcome their enemies. I also explained to you that these people were from the area of Edom, which the descendants of Esau, Jacob and Esau, Esau was the one who gave up his birthright for a bowl of porridge or a bowl of chili. And the people, they moved over to the area of Edom, and they are always representative of the flesh. In Scripture, I mentioned last week that Scripture says, Esau I hated, but Jacob I loved. He's not referring to the individuals. He's referring to the group of people, how the people of the flesh, so to speak, always war against the people of the spirit. Just like we have the flesh in our bodies, it always wars against the spirit that dwells within us. There's this constant battle that takes place. And we are not to just easily give in. We're to maintain the force in the battle going forward. And for us, it's looking to Jesus Christ, so to speak, the the Moses, the original Moses that has his hand out and he's holding the staff of God. And we get encouragement from him. But if we're not in the word and in fellowship, we end up losing that strength. We end up losing that direction, that guidance, that fellowship, those things that build up the body of Christ. If we neglect that area, we will eventually become weak and even be in danger of falling away. And so God tells us in the book of Romans that we are to fight this fight, even though those things that we want to do, we don't do in Romans chapter 7. The evil is right there with me, he says, and in verse 22 of Romans 7, for in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law at sin at work in my members. Simply saying... 
this body has its own desires. And we need to make an attempt to separate ourselves from our own desires, which are wicked. Not the one that God, ones that God gives us that are spiritual, but the ones that are fleshly, that are carnal, because life given to the flesh ends in death, but life given to the spirit, it ends in life. And we get to uh, be strengthened again by Christ and go on into heaven because we fight this fight. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. We're going to fall as we're going to see here. God chose a lot of imperfect people uh, to do his will. But it's our job to, if we fall, get back up. How many times does Scripture say a righteous man will fall and get back up? Seven. Seven times a righteous man will fall and get back up. That doesn't mean if you fall seven times you give up. What that means is if you fall repeatedly, repeatedly get back up because Christ is able to make us stand if we just trust in him. No matter how many times we fall, his grace is sufficient. He looks at us and he says, I know you are trapped in this body of sin and I will help you and I will provide for you everyone else around you to assist you to come along and say, come on, we can get back up. We can do this again. It's just given to us as a warning in scripture be careful especially the leadership if you are helping somebody else to get back up beware that you might be tempted to fall into the same sin and so just take care of that and make sure you're coming along if you're heading a ministry or something or even if you're just in a bible study you come along and you help those people you listen to what their needs and desires and cares are and if we're doing that the body of christ will be built up now there's a second application to the story that takes place with the Amalekites and Moses and Joshua overcoming them, and that is with the staff. What is the big deal with that staff? We know that it was an instrument of judgment with Pharaoh. Remember, he would lay the staff down, it would turn into a snake, and then Pharaoh showed up with his magicians, and they put down two snakes or two staffs, and they turned into snakes. And Moses' staff consumed the two snakes, and it was a sign to them that they were going to be judged and that there were plagues coming. And so God told Moses to use that staff to point out the judgments which were going to come to the people. Then also it was used as an instrument of mercy. If you remember the Israelites, Moses took the staff and he smote the rock. He hit the rock in order to provide for them water which brought life. And so because of that staff being used, it was an instrument of mercy. God didn't judge the Israelites who, if you remember, were given to complaining like no other. And just as a side note, I pray that you guys write down in your Bibles Philippians 2.14, that you have it memorized, do everything without complaining or arguing. When something doesn't go right... As I recently learned, there will be those who complain. There will be those who just say, that's it, I don't to get this sour attitude that just seems to permeate and there is no faith or trust in God that he has everything in control. And so we want to make sure that we do not complain about anything at all. Uh, whether it's if your wife cooks, your wife's cooking, if your husband's cook, your husband's cooking, if it's the traffic, 
And you guys know what traffic is becoming like here in San Diego. It's terrible. We're not to complain about it. And I'm, I fight that one. Who gave you a license, you know? So it came from thrifties or something. They, they don't know how to. And then, you know, I know there are some of you who have never uh, texted on your cell phone or looked at it while you're driving. What's your reaction when you see somebody else do it? Yo, get off your phone! And then you pick up yours, right? And you're, you're just kind of going through it. And you know that they're not really paying attention to what's going on, but you can see them on their phone. And I have just learned to say, may God's mercy be upon you, my son. You know, something like that as I drive down. But this idea that God has used this staff first as an instrument of judgment, then as an instrument of mercy, but then also as an instrument of victory. Because in this battle, Moses was holding up this staff. Now, who does that remind you of, this staff? If it is an instrument of judgment, an instrument of mercy, and an instrument of victory. It'd be Jesus Christ himself. That's what that staff is supposed to represent. Everything that is in the Old Testament, there seems to be some type of foreshadowing or some type of mystery connected with it. And all it takes for us to discover it is get in there and dig. I told you again last week that I'm going through a book in this book, it's an audio book, 50 People That Every Christian Should Know by Warren Worsby. And first I listen to that and I think, what in the world am I doing in the pulpit? I, I don't know why I am even here because these men and these women who have served in ministry, I look at them and I think, I am such a blow it. And then all of these men and women they have uh, biographies written about them and how they got down on themselves and how they thought they weren't doing the right job and then God would use them in incredible ways. But these people, they were certainly an example for us to follow and we need to be reading about people like that in order to be inspired. And specifically, Jesus Christ, this judgment and this mercy and this victory, it's all good, but we need to also see it applied in the lives of others, not only in our own lives. And that brings encouragement to us as well. So we see the symbolism and the foreshadowing that's here, the judgment, the mercy, and the victory, and it reflects Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one who took our judgment. Jesus was the one who was struck, and he became the water of life. And Jesus was lifted up, and he secured for us the victory. And so that's how you make the connection between the staff that is reported to have inspired the troops and Jesus Christ. Now, going on with this, I need to see where I need to go because I'm limited on my time here. Let's go to chapter 18. In chapter 18 and verse 1, says, Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, and the father-in-law of Moses, heard everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought out of Egypt, or brought them out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law, Jethro received her three 
or her sons, her two sons, one son named Gershom for Moses said, I have become an alien in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' son and wife, came to him in the desert where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know the Lord is greater than all other gods for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people. Officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Now, just by way of mention here, Moses is over 
three, two to three million people. And his father-in-law shows up. And he's submissive to his father-in-law. And his father-in-law tells him, I don't care how many people you're running over here, but, you know, you need to pull back a little bit, Moses. And here's Moses getting advice on how he should run two or three million people that God delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians. And here's a Midian priest. His father-in-law shows up and says, this is what I think you ought to do. And Moses goes, great idea. Now, he could have said, you're telling me, a shepherd, you're telling me what to do. i got two, three million people here, and you're telling me. Is that kind of Italian? Is that what that is? <laughs> you're telling me what I'm supposed to do. And, and so he listens to Jethro, and he says, this sounds like a great idea. It'll take some burden off from me. And I bet Moses' wife, Zipporah, is probably going, you ought to listen to him. You know, he's a pretty wise guy, my father. I like my father. And Moses, he submitted to that. Now, that was interesting to see this. Jethro, he was a Midianite. He was older and he was wiser. He had more experience. As I mentioned before, he was a priest of Midian. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 16, it talks about that. And he was a Midianite who was different than the rest of the Midianites. He sacrificed to the same God that Moses did as well. And it's not unusual that there would be people outside of the nation of Israel that would follow God. Now, one of them we know from the book of Exodus. His name is Melchizedek. Now, some people, or Melchizedek, however you want to pronounce it, some people think that that was really Jesus Christ in the flesh because he had no father or mother. He was out without lineage. And he was a prince of Salem, which means the prince of peace. And so sometimes people try to make this connection that that was Christ in the Old Testament. I don't know if it was or not, but the point is there are other people outside the people of Israel that follow the same God. God works in various ways, but at this particular time, to set the stage for the Messiah to come, he was getting a group of people that came from Abraham. He says, this is where the Messiah is going to come from. Not that there aren't other people that follow God, because there are. And Jethro was one of those people. And Jethro observed this dilemma that Moses was going through and provided counsel. Moses was certainly relying on his own strength. After he received this counsel, he decided to change it. Now, we found out that in the beginning there were 600,000 men. That wasn't counting the women and the children. And we got the breakdown from Scripture that there were supposed to be rulers over thousands, rulers over hundreds, and rulers over fifties, and rulers over ten. Now, if you just take the 600,000 men and you start appointing leaders over thousand, you would have 600 men that would be able to counsel. If you also selected one man for every hundred that would be under the thousand, you would have an additional 6,000 men. So, so far you have 6,600 men to oversee just based on the 600,000 men that there are there. Not that there couldn't be more. There's two to three million people. I'm just taking a very conservative estimate here. And then if there was one man for every 50 individuals, counting the 600,000, you can see where the numbers start going. That's 12,000 men. So you have 
First, you go through the 12,000, then to the 6,000, and if they can't decide, then you go to the 600, and if the 600 can't decide, then you go to Moses, right? But that's not where it ended. He put one man over 10. So if you have 10 men and you select one from those 10, that is 60,000 men. So 60,000 plus 12,000 is 72,000 plus another 6,000 over the hundreds. That's 78,000. And it comes out to a total of 78,600 men that were given the job of judging over the people. Now, how much effort would Moses have to put into judging after he appoints those thousands and thousands? He could be just interceding to God or for the people to God. He would be directed in whatever he was supposed to be doing. And there's lessons to be learned from this, that we're supposed to be a team, that we're supposed to share the load. But Moses was doing it on his own, and the people came to him, and he said, well, I have to do it. Well, we don't have to do it. If we have people who assist us, now there are always times where we just got to pick up the slack and do it ourselves. After being an employer for several years, there are always those who would come along and they just wouldn't do their job quite right. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. You spend so much time doing HR-related, handling HR-related difficulties that you can't really focus on what you're supposed to be doing. And that's why they hire human resource people. And they are always busy because people are a problem. Let's just face it, right? I I mean, people have issues. They're sinners and they're full of problems. And, And even the ones who are in HR, they're full of problems as well. It's like the psychologist. Why do people become psychologists? It's because they have issues and they want to solve their issues. I was just listening to some podcast on some psychologist and the reason she became a psychologist was one time she almost committed suicide and she wanted to figure out what was wrong with her life. And so that's why that person went into the field. And so we are all broken. And even the judges that were appointed, there were some judges, I'm sure, that were favored over the people. Well, I don't want to listen to what you have to say. I don't like you as a judge. I'm going to go to the next judge. And so they go to the next judge, and I'm sure they make their appeal process. But Moses could just sit back and go, oh, man, what a relief, you know, to be able to have these other people doing the judging. So what about this? First of all, Moses was to select capable men to help, give them responsibility, and let them be judges over the people. Now, I'm going to give you one, two, three, four different areas here. The first one is imperfect people were chosen. Now, I've mentioned this briefly. If you look back in the history of the Bible, Moses, upstanding man, right? More humble than anybody else on the face of the earth. You know that he was a murderer. Remember that? Before his 40 years of exile, he killed somebody who was beating an Israelite. The guy was a murderer, and God wanted to kill him. You remember? God called him. He goes, God, send somebody else. And so God showed up, and he was going to kill him because he was such a whiner. And he wouldn't go forward and do what he was supposed to do. He had not circumcised his sons, and his wife circumcised the sons and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me, and touched the foreskin to his toes, and, you know, hopefully that would satisfy. And God goes, okay, that's last chance, man. And he took off. That was Bill's version. And he took off. And Moses was a murderer, and he was a slacker. 
But in Egypt, he wasn't like that. What happened to him over those 40 years? I don't know. But God said, I'm choosing you. Now, if we chose based on that, let's see, I need a murderer and somebody who's a slacker. That's who you want for your position, right, that you have available. Well, that's who God chose. Well, what about David? Remember David? He was ruddy. He was hand- ruddy means he had red hair. I don't know if he had freckles or not, but he was a handsome guy. He was a cool dude. Everybody looked at him and wanted to be with David. He was also a murderer and an adulterer, right? He killed Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, because he committed adultery with her. She got pregnant. He wanted to hire, uh, he wanted to get rid of Uriah. And so he told the leader, the commander of his forces, to go out and get him killed, stick him to the front of the battle, and then withdraw and let him fight all by himself. And could you imagine what Uriah was thinking? What? Where are you guys going? You know, and he's out there in the midst of the battle, and David planned it all. And then Nathan the prophet showed up and, oh, just let him have it. But David was able to submit humbly to what God said. There was judgment to come because of that. The child died that was conceived in that adulterous relationship. But God chose David, says a man after God's own heart, and he was wicked. I mean, if you look at, how many in here are murderers? Yeah, there, see, you guys under a couple of you understand that if you're angry at your brother, you're a murderer. Have you ever been angry at your brother or sister? Yeah. There you go. So that just makes us all murderers in here. And God can choose to use you just like He chose to use David or Moses. Well, what about Peter? You know, Peter was a fisherman. I, I have this vision in my mind of what Peter looked like. That I believe him to be probably six foot three or six foot four. He was probably a little thinner. Sometimes he's projected as this individual who is a little more stout, but I, I think he was probably a little thinner. I think his hair may have been a little puffy, not too big, because it was a it was a, a shame to have long hair. So I, I imagine it being all curly, and he had this beard. You know, the bigger the beard, the more manly you were, you know, something like that. And so that's how I envisioned Peter. And he was rough and tough, and he's pulling these nets in all the time, and God says, I'm choosing you. And in the few weeks, a few months later, what does he tell him? I rebuke you. Get thee behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan, right? Peter, the apostle, the one who is witnessing 3,000 people get saved. And Jesus calls him Satan. And he decided to use him as well. Well, what about all of us? Each of these men had their own story. A story where God's grace and his power of redemption comes in and they are used. And that's our story as well. God chooses to use us. We are a model of imperfection. And God says, that's all right. I'm going to make you a model of perfection. So imperfect people were chosen. Secondly, independent ministry is to be avoided. Now, there are times where you have to go out because nobody will help. And you go out and you do the job that God has called you to do. Remember Elijah? He was in a cave. He got expressed meat brought to him by a a raven or a crow and dropped it off and God fed him and he goes, I'm the only one left. 
And God says, no, there are 6,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal in Israel. And it was probably a relief to him, but he thought he was the only one. And, of course, this took place after the prophets of Baal where they had this contest where fire came down in Mount Carmel that God put there. And the prophets of Baal couldn't get that to happen, and he did. And then he had to take off, and uh, Jezebel, and it it was a terrible time in Israel's history. But Elijah was there, and he thought he was all alone. And God has preserved people. He just didn't know who they were. Right, And so in any type of church, in any type of ministry, God has people who have not bowed the knee to, knee to Baal, and they are the ones that God wants to use. And so this independent ministry, it is to be avoided. Jesus said to go out two by two. In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, he chose 72 individuals to be the advance crew, to go into these cities and to be a witness. And he said, you're to go two by two. If you go out witnessing, it's not always a good idea to go out alone. It depends on how you're doing it and what you're doing. If you're just going to Starbucks to witness to the Jehovah Witnesses who sit out front on Saturday morning, usually about 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning, they're sitting right there in two chairs and they have some stuff. And if you want to go up and talk to them and tell them about Jesus Christ and refer to Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? And today, have you heard that? particular verse or in John twenty twenty eight, where Thomas said my Lord and my God that Jesus is God and he's not Michael the archangel just thought you might want to do something like that if we have one person go over there every week for the next 10 weeks just imagine the influence that we could be they maybe get the hint you know that maybe well I digress you're not supposed to do independent ministry independent ministry is to be avoided Jesus said to go out two by two well what about these two guys Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 through Acts chapter 15 it was those two guys that went out and they can be a support to each other if you go out alone there's not much support and your mind can start playing tricks with you if you isolate yourself as well nobody's gonna listen to me I can't do this thing and you're wine and it's philippians chapter 2 verse 14 do everything without complaining or as my granddaughter said complaining or whining i said precisely complaining or arguing you're not supposed to do either one of those right so paul and barnabas were out there and of course they had a nasty fight between them and barnabas i believe he was the uncle of john mark john mark abandoned them on the one of the missionary journeys And as a result, Paul didn't want to take him anywhere, but Barnabas said, no, we need to take him. And they split because of it. They had an argument over it. And the next guy who Paul picked up to use was Silas. And so, again, they went out two by two from Acts chapter 15 to Acts chapter 18. And also listed in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians are Paul and Silas. So they were always going out two by two. Whenever we do ministry, we want to make sure if somebody is available... We bring them in or we raise up somebody to assist with the ministry. Also, Titus was told in the book of Titus, chapter 1, he was to go out and appoint elders in every church that he visited because that had not yet been done to assist in the ministry, to provide headship for the people inside the body, people who were capable, people who were reliable, not that they were perfect, but that's what Titus was told to do. So the admonition here is... Independent ministry is to be avoided. Thirdly, invite the competent to serve. Now, I didn't say perfect. Invite the competent to serve. Now, that can be a toss-up. What do you consider competent? 
I would say the biggest thing that would be a competency test would be faithfulness. If there's a prayer meeting, the person's at the prayer meeting. If there's a church meeting, the person's at the church meeting. If you call on somebody to do something, they're the ones that stand up and say, I will do it. They may not be eminently qualified with all the skills, but they are faithful. They are there. They are willing to just say, whatever you ask of me, I will do it. it it's like the attitude we're supposed to have with Christ himself. If he asks us to do it, are we willing, no matter what it is, if he says, I'm sending you to Antarctica with an apple and cup of water, are you willing to go? And by the way, you don't get a parka. You know, would you be willing to do something if he asked you? Now, if you hear that, just disregard that. That was from Pastor Bill. That wasn't from God. But it's this idea that we listen to God and whatever he wants. Like, what is God's will for us? That we avoid sexual immorality, that we are given to prayer, that we are in the word, that we are studying the apostles' doctrine, that we are involved in fellowship, and we do not neglect those things. If we are only doing church on Sunday, we're neglecting. We're not, God didn't ask us just to go to church on Sunday. God asked us to lay down our lives, to take up our cross daily, to have a devotional life, to be involved, get behind what he is doing rather than what we are doing. In our culture that we have here, and I see this in other cultures too, it's all about us and what we do. We live for the weekend so that we can... Party! You know, there's a whole clothing line coming out now for people that go to rave parties. Have you seen that? that? I saw that on the news. It's like, you have to dress a particular way now to go to a rave party. If you don't know what a rave party is, just forget it. It's not anything you want to be involved in. But it's this idea of being competent, and competent is being faithful. Now, the people who are faithful are not always. Case in point, Remember Jonah? The book of Jonah. Now, what did he do? A couple of mistakes he made. A complainer, for sure. Why did God choose a complainer? Why didn't he find somebody that says, okay, I'll go. He chose Jonah. What do you mean I have to go? I'm not going. I'm getting on a ship going the opposite direction. And what did God have to do? Kick him off the boat, swallow up in a big fish. He probably died during that three days. The fish burped him up on the beach. He came back to life, probably all covered in who knows what. And then he goes off to Nineveh. But he was a complainer. And once he went there and he goes, I knew you're full of mercy and that you would forgive these people if they repented. I knew that was going to happen. Why did you call? I'd rather see them be judged. And so he sat up on a hill and this castor plant grew up and then it provided him for shade or shade for him and he was just kind of going, oh, this is cool, all right, I'm going to watch what God's going to do here. And they all repented. And then a worm comes in and eats at the little plant that grew up. I think it was a castor bean plant. And as he's underneath that and the plant withers, then he starts complaining, you know, stupid little worm killed it. And he just goes off on a rant again. And he couldn't get behind the idea that these people repented. The people in Nineveh repented. And he looked at his circumstances. What a complainer. But you know what? He ended up being faithful. A complaining, faithful guy. Would I choose a complainer? I wouldn't want to choose a complainer. But God says, no, you're perfect. 
you're going to be an example for everybody else who is out there, just like the nation of Israel, a bunch of complainers. They are ones to be chosen by God, to be an example of what not to be like. And then also invite the competent to serve. There were seven men chosen to serve the needs of the widows in Acts chapter 6. If you remember the story, as the church was growing, there were these widows, widows that were of the Hellenistic crowd, the Grecian crowd, They were Gentiles and they were coming into the church. And then there were the Hebraic or those of the Hebrew tradition that were also widows. And they both needed to be ministered to. And the people from the pagan side, the Greek side, showed up to the apostles and said, Hey, look, our widows are being neglected. You're spending all these times with the Hebrew widows over here. And so the disciples, the apostles said, Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to appoint seven men full of the Holy Spirit, capable, and they are going to serve. If you remember, Stephen, I believe, was one of those, and he was stoned for his faith in Jesus Christ and his witness against the Jews, and that's why he was stoned. But he was competent to serve because of his faithfulness. Same thing with these seven. The rest of the seven, they were competent to serve. And so we have the imperfect people were chosen, the independent ministries to be avoided, invite the competent to serve, and lastly, escape the pitfalls of going alone. What are these pitfalls of going alone? There are several. When you're going alone, you're running from emergency to emergency. And I would phrase it like this. Do not let the tyranny of the urgent dictate the direction of your life. There are so many things that seem to be pressing, that press in around us, and we run from crisis to crisis. And especially in the case of ministry, don't run from crisis to crisis. You'll never stop running. That's what Moses did. There's so many crises, they show up from morning to evening, and he's adjudicating their cases. And, of course, he passed that off to the rest. And, by the way, There was another group that came after this called the Seventy. They eventually made up what would become known as the Sanhedrin. So you had the additional 70 on top of that. They were like the Supreme Court of the land. And that's what Paul was thought to be a part of. But we want to make sure that we don't let our lives become impacted by the crises around us. Have you ever seen uh, the videographers? They will have a picture or a video of some guy, he's at a table and he's just slowly eating his food like this. There's no big deal. He's just consuming his food. He goes for his cup. He drinks his cup. And then in the background, everybody is just moving like this, right? Have you seen that kind of commercial? If if you go, look at all the people, they're just moving everywhere so fast, I have to get involved with this. No, you don't. Just eat your food, drink your cup, let everything go on behind you. And that's how God will use you. And every once in a while, somebody will stop, and they stop right with you, and they go, why are you just sitting here waiting for you? And they pull up, and you just help them with their issue, whatever their issue is. But they're in crisis mode all the time. So we don't want to let the tyranny of the urgent dictate the direction of our lives. Secondly, let is what's significant be the signpost which guides you. There are significant issues where you need to just stop and say, okay, I need to focus on this one or 
over here. And they're going to be few. They're not going to be a lot. If you're living your life according to the way God wants you to live it, you're not going to have crises all over the place all the time. There may be from time to time an occasion like that, but usually it's one issue you've got to focus on. Or if somebody calls you up that you really care about, say, can we meet? You drop what you're doing and you meet. If somebody calls you up and you know that they're just having a struggling time and they need some help, you show up. You say, how can I help you? That's what we're supposed to do. Now, if imagine the 80,000 plus counselors that were there. At any moment's notice, you could go to any one of them and they would say, how can I help you? What can I do for you? Imagine if everybody in the church did that. How can I help you? What can I do for you? And if we were all doing that, there would not be one single need left unmet. It's when we decide that, ah, I don't have time for that. Come on. Football season's starting pretty soon. And I got to get caught up on that. And baseball and basketball, you know? How about that uh, LeBron James? You know, I got to get up on the stats with him. You know, the final, what do they call it, the final four or something like that? I'm not too up on basketball. But we get these things that just interrupt our lives. We, we want to make sure that what is significant, those are the things that are the signposts in our lives. We stop, we take care of that, and we're all supposed to do it. We are not limited to just one or two who are supposed to take care of this. And then thirdly, accept counsel and help. To some degree, Moses thought he was the only one that was capable of ministering to the people and it was probably the case that the people would not accept someone else I can remember when I got baptized the first time it was with Mike McIntosh I got baptized twice once down at uh, Mission Bay and the other time was in Israel in the Jordan River because you know that water is holy over there and you got to get in that water and that's where John the Baptist was and Jesus got in that water so I needed to get in that water but when I was over here in Mission Bay Mike McIntosh was in the water and he's the pastor you know he had the halo going around him and, and then you had all the other people you know and you wanted to just you wanted to get Mike because he had something else with him, right? And it's not true. And I remember him teaching about that. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And the apostle Paul was glad that he didn't baptize anybody because people have a tendency to look at one individual. You're, you have to do it. No one else can do it. I'm going to get married and I'm not getting married unless you do it. I'm not dying unless you do the funeral and then I'll go ahead and die. And then at that point you can show up. And we, we have these individuals in our mind that they need to be the ones to do it. And no, it doesn't need to be that way. There are those who are completely capable of ministering and we don't want to be a burden, but you know, if, if it's necessary and you have to talk to the person, they're the only ones that can satisfy the need or the issue you have then great, then, then do that, pursue that. But we have to keep in mind, God has provided every one of us to minister to those who are out there. We're to take up the mantle and say, I will, and I can. Now, in closing this out, this idea of helping others, it's not a concept that is limited to Christianity. Now, I don't often quote people outside of Christendom. Sometimes I do. 
But there's one guy called, or his name is, the Dalai Lama. You know who that is? He's a Buddhist. He wrote, our prime purpose in life is to help others. You know, there's a phrase. All truth is God's truth, but not all truth is in the Bible. If there is truth out there outside the Bible, it's still God's truth. And if our purpose in life is to help others, would you say that comports that that is equal to Philippians chapter 2, consider others better than yourself? It does. And so we want to latch on to what that truth is, no matter who says it, no matter where we find it, we want to make sure that we live our lives in such a way to help others. And by the way, there is a benefit to this. Now, this was said by Pope John Paul. Pope, oh, no, I'm sorry, Pope Paul VI. He said this, Nothing makes one feel so strong as a call for help. If a mother has a child and the child says, Mommy, help me. Does the mother feel emboldened and empowered to help? She will die to get help to that child, right? She feels fit. She feels needed. And so when somebody calls upon you to help, I'm telling you, if you're able to help, the joy level just goes up. The problem comes in is when we're not listening to the needs of others and we decide to focus on ourselves. And when we look inward, I don't know about you, but when I look inward, I don't like what I see. I see the sin. I see the selfishness. I see that God is right in saying that we are utterly harmful to everyone else around us. And that is the grace of God. He provides for us the salvation to remove us from this. But that's the lesson here. Submit yourself to those who wish to help you, help others that need it. That's the point. If they need the gospel, give them the gospel. If they need their lawn mode, get their lawn mode. If they need groceries, get the groceries. If they need counsel, bone up on the counsel so that you can counsel them and help them. And this is God's desire for you, that you be built up in the most holy faith that you're able to recite at a moment's notice any verse that God would have you recite because you've been in the Word and that you would pray on sight at the moment for the need that is at hand, that those people are suffering would receive relief, that you can bring comfort to those who need it in their time of need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom that you provide. We thank you that Moses followed the counsel of his father-in-law and that he was blessed because of it, and so were the people. We ask that you would help us to model that, Lord. And as we do so, we know that your hand of blessing and guidance will be upon us. And you will be blessed, for you are raising up a heritage, a generation to worship and serve you. And we submit to your will in this, Father. Enable us to do so by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, please stand.